Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The glorious era that was Tudor England helped shape the early exploration and colonization of the North American continent. Join me as we continue a deep dive into Tudor England and its great transatlantic explorers. As the Tudors prepare to explore and settle in America, the battle rages on to determine if the colonization will be done under the Catholic or Protestant banner. On a recent fact-finding trip to southern England, I went in search of Queen Elizabeth I. Early morn, I wasted no time checking out of my London hotel and escaping the capital city's urban constraints for the English countryside, northwestward bound. Having completed an enlightening visit of Hampton Court the day before, I was back on the road heading up towards a university town. I drove past a large highway panel signaling my imminent arrival in England's academic hub, the historic University City of Oxford. I was happy to be back at Oxford and had decided to take a stroll around the oldest university in the English-speaking world and the world's second oldest school of higher learning in continuous operation. The university, founded at the turn of the first millennium, was made up of a variety of self-governing institutions, including 38 constituent colleges. Being a city university, it did not have a main campus. Instead, its buildings and facilities were scattered throughout the city center. Unlike North American universities, most undergraduate teaching at Oxford are organized around weekly tutorials at the colleges and halls. Supported by classes, lectures, and laboratory work provided by university faculties and departments. It was a lovely day when I arrived, so I strolled the grounds leading to the Thames River, where I recalled the rowing opportunities it had once offered me on previous visits. Those times at Oxford had been well spent. Jesus College was founded in 1571 under the reign of Elizabeth I, making it the only Elizabethan college within the University of Oxford. It is officially known as Jesus College in the University of Oxford of Queen Elizabeth's Foundation. The pristine grounds at Oxford reminded me of my time years before at England's other historic academic institution, Trinity College at Cambridge University and walking through that lovely academic paradise into several Trinity College buildings allowing me to soak in the illustrious architectural history of the prestigious learning center founded in 1546 by King Henry VIII. I had relished walking the halls once graced by academic luminaries such as physicist Isaac Newton and his modern heir, the now late Stephen Hawking. My mission at Oxford was to research the visual depictions of Queen Elizabeth. I stood in the dining room, directly under the largest full-length portrait painting of the monarch, behind where the high table is placed. Attributed to the school of English painter Nicholas Hilliard, the exquisite portrait of the bejeweled majesty belongs to the college and occupies its permanent location. Now, Let's examine the clever and effective use of political art during the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Paintings of her likeness demonstrated the Tudor concept of power. 
The portraiture of Queen Elizabeth I of England illustrates the evolution of English royal portraits from the representations of simple likenesses to the later multifaceted imagery used to convey the power, authority, supremacy, and aspirations of the state, as well as of the monarch at its head. Elizabeth paid more attention to propaganda than art, disseminating her portraits widely throughout her realm. Even the earliest portraits of the Queen contain symbolic objects such as the Tudor Rose, prayer books, and exotic animals that would have carried meaning to viewers of her day. Later paintings of Elizabeth layer the iconography of empire, crowns, columns, swords, and globes, and representations of purity, virginity, and immortality such as moons, sieves, pearls, and mythological creatures, with classical allusions to present a complex narrative that conveyed to Elizabethan epoch viewers the significance and majesty of their virgin queen. The portrait of the queen that hangs in the dean's residence at Westminster's Abbey is dated 1595. The face of the queen was later overpainted to make her look more youthful. Youth was an obsession for Elizabeth and her public image. That is why, in her later portraits, she had the face of eternal youth, without emotion. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Clothing was also very important. It was meant to send a message. Here was an autocratic queen that knew how to dress the part. Elizabeth always took special care to physically assume the role of an unassailable monarch. When she had become queen, the plain princess of the blood had assumed the necessary carapace of glittering fabric and priceless jewels, transforming herself into the glamorous superhuman vision of royalty, the trappings of Gloriana the Queen. Her obvious air of supremacy transmuted her into something semi-divine. The detail in her clothing was truly amazing. Her beautiful auburn hair is worn like a red gold crown. Elizabeth Tudor was a great admirer and follower of fashion and a trendsetter. She had a substantial influence on the fashion of the English Renaissance and encouraged her courtiers to dress well. While in private, the Queen preferred to wear plain gowns and would reputedly wear the same simple gown for several days. When in public, she dressed to impress. Clothes were an important status symbol at her court, and a person had to dress in accordance with their social station. It was thus normal that the monarch dressed more magnificently than anyone else. No one was allowed to rival Elizabeth's appearance. No one. 
An unfortunate lady-in-waiting was once admonished for wearing a dress that was too extravagant. The queen's maids were meant to compliment their sovereign's appearance, not to outshine her. Elizabeth drove home this point when she famously stated, There is but one sun in this universe. During the latter part of the reign, the queen's female attendants, including her wardrobe mistress, wore dresses of plain colors such as silver, gray, or white. Elizabeth owned over 2,000 gowns of all colors, but black and white were her favorite tints as they symbolized magic, purity, and virginity. The gowns in her royal wardrobe, powdered and brushed, would be embroidered with all sorts of colored thread and tessellated with precious gemstones. Like all aristocratic ladies of her epoch, she would wear a chemise, a corset stiffened with iron or wood, stockings, a petticoat, a farthingale, a dress or gown, sleeves, and finally, ruffs for her neck and wrists. These ruffs, or pleated collars, became even more grandiose with the discovery of starch. And all this was held in place by hundreds of pins. No wonder it took royals and aristocrats so long to dress, and no wonder they needed so much help from servants. I couldn't help but notice the stiffness and rigidity of the queen's body and face compared to the masterpieces I had recently viewed in northern Italy. The portraits of her day appeared to be more iconic in nature than the fully humanistic paintings found on Europe's boot. There exists a splendid tableau from Hatfield House known as the Rainbow Portrait. To complete her appearance, Elizabeth would wear accessories such as a pomander to ward off foul smells and infection, a fan, and a lot of jewelry including brooches, necklaces of pearl or diamond, earrings, and finger rings. One cannot help but notice her slender hands. She thought them her best feature. She could be quite sentimental about jewels given as gifts. She cherished a beautiful necklace of pearls given to her by one of her favorite courtiers, and a diamond and ruby ring that contained a tiny enameled portrait of her mother, along with an image of herself. This ring was found on her finger when she died. Elizabeth would occasionally wear other accessories such as a small prayer book attached to her girdle and a watch encased in a bracelet, the first known wristwatch in England. For the outdoors, Queen Elizabeth would wear rich velvet cloaks, gloves of leather or cloth, and in warm weather, she would make use of hats to protect her pale face from the sun. For hunting, she would dress in special riding outfits that allowed easier movement. She would also wear boots, such as the Queen's footwear in the tableau I stood before. Gloriana was never fully dressed without her makeup. In the early years of her reign, she wore little, but following her attack of the smallpox at age 29, she would wear quite a lot to cover her facial scars. She would paint her visage with vinegar and white lead, put rouge on her lips, and paint her cheeks with egg white and red dye. This makeup was very bad for one's health, especially the white lead, which slowly poisoned the body. The Elizabethans tried to take care of their teeth. However, teeth rotted as they did not have advanced dental care. The queen had several teeth removed as she grew older. As a consequence, she would stuff rags into her mouth to prevent the appearance of hollow cheeks. It was very fashionable to wear a wig, and Elizabeth did so from a young age. She loved wearable art, 
The attire she planned for her aged body's entombment was eventually used as a model for the stone-carved effigy that now adorned the top of her tomb. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body which decreases as we age. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY to the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text history that's H I S T O R Y using the code 30605.